Some years ago, I took one of those BuzzFeed-style quizzes that assigns, in this case, one's personality to a uh, Shakespeare play. I got A Midsummer Night's Dream with the added assumption that I must have worn a lot of body glitter in school. While my half-assed Catholic upbringing means that I'm far too self-conscious to publicly romp about in body glitter, A Midsummer Night's Dream is my favorite Shakespeare play, so this one BuzzFeed quiz is actually accurate. I consider Michael Hoffman's 1999 film to be the strongest screen version of the play, although that's largely by default. While A Midsummer Night's Dream has been adapted a bunch of times, I've largely disliked most of the versions I've come across. This is pretty much the only one that's charmed me the whole way through, in fact. It's faithful to the play, the cast is great, the set pieces and decor look terrific, and the score brings it all together. Also bicycles. Bicycles. If nothing else, an 8th grade English teacher can safely put this on to fill out the last week or so of classes in June without too much worry. So we'll be looking at the Hoffman take on A Midsummer Night's Dream, using it to examine this enduring rom-com and asking why it's arguably the most popular of the Bard's comedies. My name is Ryan, this is A Real Deep Dive. Joining me on this one is my brother Sylvan, who has already introduced themselves. Hello. And uh, Cheryl is also here. I'm also here. All right, well, I told you that Midsummer is my favorite Shakespeare play. I might as well just ask you what yours are. Mine's still Romeo and Juliet. I got into it when I was at an impressionable young age and also Mercutio. Weird that we haven't done the Baz Luhrmann film. Mm, We should do that at some point. This one's actually my favorite, too, and a lot of that has to do with my weird discovery of Logo. Oh, right. One of the ones that I haven't actually seen yet is A Midsummer Night's Rave, which was on Logo all the time when we were, you know, teenagers. So, yep. Yep. yeah, that imprinted on you, and it also imprinted on Sarah. Really? Yeah. Oh, good to know. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. It's in Dead Poet Society, too, right? It is in Dead Poet Society. I think it's everybody's, like, baby's first Shakespeare. I figured Romeo and Juliet was that. I didn't like Romeo and Juliet as a kid. It is the first one I read in school, and that seems to be the case for most people. No, this was the first one that I read. Oh, really? I, they never gave me any of the comedies when I was in high school. I had to seek those out on my own. Well, keep in mind that I had two older siblings ahead of me, and they often liked to tell me what they were doing, and I got curious about what they were reading. Ah. Alright, plot recap in case you clicked on this without knowing anything about A Midsummer Night's Dream. For this film version, the aristocrats in Mont Athena, situated in the Kingdom of Italy, that's a shift, are preparing <laughs> for the wedding of Duke Theseus and his bride Hippolyta. The nuptials, however, are disrupted when the young lovers Lysander and Hermia are forbidden to marry each other by Hermia's father Aegeus, who has promised her hand to the youthful noble Demetrius. Lysander and Hermia immediately make an impulsive plan to flee to the forest to escape the arrangement. Lysander has an aunt in another city-state that'll um, put them up. Demetrius, who desires Hermia, follows them. He's been tipped off by Helena, a young lady who is desperately in love with Demetrius and eager to win his favor even through this act of self-sabotage. Real pick-me energy, as Sylvan pointed out. (laughs) Yes, she she is a delightfully desperate pick-me. Once in the forest, the four wander into the fairy kingdom ruled by Oberon and Titania. 
Along with a servant Puck, Oberon causes mayhem among the lovers with a magic potion that causes both Lysander and Demetrius to fall in love with Helena. This leads to a rift between all four that culminates, in this version, in a wild mud wrestling scene. <laughs> Jealous of the attention that Titania lavishes upon a child that she's abducted, Oberon bewitches her with the very same potion. That was the original intent of the potion, and then he caught the young mortals having trouble, and he was like, you know what, hey Puck, go fix this, and then he makes it worse. Yay! Puck, everyone. While this is all going on, an amateur acting troupe is preparing a play for the entertainment of the Duke at his wedding reception. Bottom, the troop's de facto thespian leader, has taken the rehearsal to the forest. However, the mischievous Puck magically enchants Bottom with the head of an ass just as Titania comes upon the scene. Under the influence of the love potion, Titania is instantly smitten by donkey-headed Bottom's dubious charms. She spends the rest of the evening wooing Bottom in her bower, attended by fairies. Is that what the cup was? Yes. Thank you. In this version, they're in, like, this giant cup that is suspended by ivy. Ultimately, Oberon tires of the mess he and Puck have made, and eventually, he decides to put everything right. Magical forces soon pair Lysander back with Hermia and Demetrius with Helena. Oberon then reconciles with Titania, who is a bit embarrassed that she became infatuated with a mortal with the face of a donkey. At the wedding the next day, Bottom and his troop of rude mechanicals perform their take on the tragedy of Pyramus and Thisbe. However, their amateurish stagecraft and inept acting transform the tragedy into an unintentionally hilarious comedy. Except for that bit in the end. An amused Theseus and Hippolyta derive a great deal of ironic pleasure from the play, and everything works out for everyone. They get little medals at the end. The troop's very happy with them. The film closes with a monologue by Puck, who implores the audience not to take the events of the story too seriously, because that was a serious threat. Alright, before we get into the production, I figured I'd give you a very, very condensed background of the play. Uh, it's not firmly known when Shakespeare wrote A Midsummer Night's Dream, but topical references in the text place it between 1595 and 1596. The play is not a direct translation or adaptation of an earlier work, most of the Bard's plays are. However, it does draw upon a number of sources, including, among other things, uh, the marriage of Theseus to Hippolyta would have been available to Shakespeare in Choker's Knight's Tale, and Thomas North's 1579 translation of Plutarch's Life of the Noble Grecians and Romans. The love triangle between Lysander, Hermia, and Demetrius is present in the Shocker work. Helena is the bard's invention, added presumably both to complicate things and to ensure a crowd-pleasing romantic ending where everyone is paired off in the final scenes. Bottom's staging of Pyramus and Thisbe is derived from Arthur Golden's translation of Ovid's Metamorphosis. It is often theorized that Bottom's transformation was inspired by William Adlington's 1566 translation of Apuleius's Golden Ass. Robin Goodfellow, a.k.a. Puck, as well as Oberon Titania, were all stock characters who appeared in dozens of literary works prior to A Midsummer Night's Dream. It would have been like, you know, throwing Batman into a play. Everyone knows who Batman is. I mean, that's going to immediately intrigue me if Batman just walks in in the middle of a play. <laughs> oh, wow, things are about to get crazy. <laughs> The earliest known film version of A Midsummer Night's Dream is 1925's Wood Love, a silent German production. That sounds like the name of a different kind of movie. 
I mean, I suppose it could be like a porn parody of A Midsummer Night's Dream, but that'd be barely different. I was like, what's the parody <laughs> part? Uh, the first Hollywood take was made in 1935. It starred James Cagney as Bottom, Mickey Rooney as Puck, <laughs> and Olivia de Havilland as Hermia. I fucking hate this movie. Uh, it replaces any dialogue that's even remotely sexy with boring pap, which is most of it. And Rooney is even more obnoxious than you're probably guessing right now. I just can't imagine that voice doing it, doing Shakespeare. Well, he's about 12 when this came out. Oh, I guess that's God. easier. No, no, no. The younger he is, the more annoying he is. <laughs> Plus, I, they had him on speed. Oh. I spent the whole time wanting to punt him over a fence. That's how I feel in his buddy comedies with Judy Garland. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, if you're staging a Midsummer Night's Dream, when you're doing Puck, it's either, like, a kid or a dirty old man, and I'm pretty sure I prefer a dirty old man Puck. I liked what this was. <laughs> yeah, there was also a 1968 British film that was staged by the Royal Shakespeare Company and includes Ian Holm as Puck, Diana Rigg as Helena, Helen Mirren as Hermia, and Judy Dench as Titania. That sounds like it should be awesome. I know. Considering that cast, I found it wildly disappointing when I sat down and watched the thing. Aww. I would think that Home as Puck is a slam dunk, and lots of people actually like this movie, but uh, I could never get into it. Not to mention the weird tongue thing that Home does whenever there's a scene transition. There's just not enough bikes in it. There is a stunning lack of bicycles in all of the ones that I've mentioned so far. <laughs> There is a stop-motion animated Czech film from 1959 that sounds super interesting that I haven't seen. Stop-motion creeps me out, but in a good way. And then a couple of years after the one that we're talking about in this episode, there was A Midsummer Night's Rave, which takes place in the modern day as a, a bit gayer, and Puck's a drug dealer that gives everyone some version of a party drug. Once again, Cheryl's into it, and Sarah's into it. I don't know if Sylvan has seen it and has feelings about it. No, never seen it. No. I didn't watch Logo that much. Maybe it's good. It was one of the... No, it's not. No. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell you that right now. Something's on Logo. It's not good. But um, it was like one of those awakening moments, and I was just like, what is this? This is an aspect of culture that is new to me. All right, for the development of this film... The background of its director, Michael Hoffman co-founded the Idaho Shakespeare Festival while studying at Boise State University. He studied Renaissance literature at Oxford later on and became a Rhodes Scholar. His first exposure to A Midsummer Night's Dream was playing Lysander in an Idaho production. He got into film while he was at Oxford, though, directing a then-unknown Hugh Grant in 1982's Privileged. His later films created working relationships with Kevin Kline and Michelle Pfeiffer. He had done three prior films with Klein before this one. Hoffman's screenplay transferred the setting from Athens to the fictional Italian city in, in Italy. Hoffman also moved the time period to the late 19th century, and he thought that throwing a whole bunch of bikes everywhere would make the film stand out and be charming. I mean, it I did. I think it worked. But also, I want to buy a bike now. I do like the use of bikes in the film. I, th I think it adds a lot of color to it. And Charles hated the hats. I did. Every single hat. I did not like a single hat. So you just don't like Edwardian fashion? I guess I don't. I like the high collars. I like the um, lack of shoulders, but I don't, I don't like the hats. I thought Klein's hat was nice. You like the straw hat? Yeah. And I thought the ladies were wearing nice hats with oh, the little flowers. Oh, 
And all the hat pins. I love hat pins from that time period. I do like hat pins because I like what hat pins can be used for. Don't sit close to me. Stab. We need to bring that back. Yes. As with most Shakespeare (laughs) films that I'm really into, there are lots of like little visual flourishes that aren't in the text of the source material, but I do think like add color and nuance. Most notably, Bottom has a wife in this. I didn't really like feel like there was much of a point to that, honestly. I liked it in the beginning, but then I felt really bad for her at the end when he's just like looking at the ring and he's like, do you remember that time when I turned into a donkey and cheated on my wife? Those were the good times. There is no wife or bottom depicted in the text of the play. She's present here to add what Hoffman believed was a sympathetic dimension to the character. No. What? Did not work. Yeah, his wife feels very long-suffering. She has, like, one added line where she screams in Italian, where is that worthless dreamer husband of mine? And, you know, she's not wrong. He's just running off to the woods to do terrible theater with his buddies when he should be weaving. The film was shot on location in Tuscany, with studio filming taking place in an aircraft hangar in Rome. The plants in the hangar began slowly dying, and by the fifth week of shooting, Knox's fumes had begun having a miserable effect on cast and crew. So when you see, like, Stanley Tucci riding in on his giant turtle, it looks like he's having a blast. That seems fun, but no, he was about to pass out. So actually, I know what it smells like when plants like that die en masse because of working in the dealership. Somebody was a landscaper. He brought in a vehicle over the weekend and nobody like opened the doors or anything. So we all came into work then um, on Monday and the whole place reeked of rotting fish. That's what it smells like when a bunch of plants just die and fill up a whole place. And then there's that cute scene where the fairies are sneaking into the wedding preparations and they steal the phonograph. That was I very liked that cute. Part. Yeah. yeah. Uh, another complication during shooting was the climactic mud fight. Uh, Hoffman was not satisfied with the first take and demanded a second one. So everyone had to be hosed down and redressed. Took about four hours. I mean, two takes, that's not bad, actually. Yeah, but one, it was one of those things where, like, hey, we're going to knock down every bookcase in this giant asset. We better get it right once. Yeah, fair enough. For the music for this, the composer for this is Simon Boswell. He was not given much to do. He makes ample use of Felix Mendelssohn's incidental music for the 1843 stage production that is often credited with reviving interest in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Shortly after the play was performed for its original audience back in the day, it fell into disuse, and while there were altered versions of it staged, uh, it hadn't been performed widely for a few centuries before 1843. Because of that, Mendelssohn's music for it became inextricably linked to it particularly the wedding march, which is used very prominently in this film version. Mm -hmm. There are also needle drops, sometimes literally, of operatic works from Verdi, Donizetti, Bellini, Rossini, and Mascogni. Probably just to remind you that we are in Italy. All right, and uh, let's talk about the cast for a bit. I decided to start with the rude mechanicals. We have Kevin Kline as bottom. Woo! And he did a 
really good job. Yeah, I love him in this. I do think that Klein in general is really underrated as an actor. Um, I mean, he keeps finding work, and he's never heard for work, but he should be a bigger star than he was. He had a very nice 90s run. He's basically the only part about Wild Wild West that's watchable. And I found it really weird when I came across like background information for this and discovered that he disliked playing Bottom. He wanted to be Oberon. Yeah, you already mentioned that to us, and we had our what the fuck over it, because he's he's perfect as Bottom, and also that's just a better role. I know, if you're gonna be in your Shakespeare in the Park version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, the juiciest parts are Puck and Bottom. Bottom gets to be a ham on rye, even by Shakespeare standards, and in this film version, you get to have a topless makeout sesh with Michelle Pfeiffer. That's a good day at the office. <laughs> I mean, Oberon gets to kiss her, too, but he doesn't get the word donkey ears. And, like, very cute, she's, like, like, wrapped around him. <laughs> they were very cute, like, Jim Henson-y kind of ears. I appreciated them. There are a lot of Henson-esque flourishes in this. We kept thinking of bits from uh, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth. Yep. The fraggles are coming. When the rocks were tumbling when uh, Titania was making her entrance, it was very fraggle rock. Yep. Alright, and uh, Roger Reese was Peter Quince, the mustache guy who kept yelling instructions to the oh. actors. He was the best part, other than the wall of the play within a play. His, his disappointed face. This lion has deflowered my love. Devoured! Yeah, whenever he's correcting Bottom's dogberryisms. The rest of the rude mechanicals were made up with Sam Rockwell as Francis Flute, Max Wright as Robbins, Bill Irwin as Tom Snout, and Gregory Jabara as Smug, uh, or Snug, rather. Uh, they don't get as much to do. Those are very minor parts, but, I mean, you know, the bit where the lion is trying to remind everyone not to be scared of him, that was a very sweet scene. Roar! Maybe <laughs> he got little claps. Or the bit where Thisbe is talking with the affected, terrible falsetto, but during her death scene, he just uses his normal voice, and it's, like, weirdly touching. And mm. everyone in the crowd is like, oh, when did this get good? I don't know how to good? respond to this. <laughs> this is beyond me. I mean, Sylvan said while I was setting up that uh, they don't especially like the play within a play part. It kind of drags, like, all of the central conflict of the main story is resolved, and then it just keeps going. But it kind of works in this film version. I mean, it's just so delightful. I don't know. I think part of it is the costuming, the energy of the actors. I, I liked the play within a play a lot. Yeah, it can be tough to transfer Shakespeare to the screen because films are built to be of a three-act structure. That's how almost all of them are sent to us, and that's how kind of how the public has accepted them. And Shakespeare is very much five acts. It um, it felt like um, watching the creep show movie, like with like the witch and the little boy scenes. It's <laughs> <was> like yay. <laughs> Next, we're going to bring up The Lovers. Uh, we have Anna Friel as Hermia, Dominic West as Lysander, Christian Bale as Demetrius, and Callista Flockhart as Helena. Cheryl is not a Callista Flockhart stan. No, yeah, mm-mm, not a little bit. Yeah, you didn't like her performance on Allie McBeal. I mean, I can't imagine someone who likes Allie McBeal and doesn't think that Clarissa Flockhart is good. <sighs> I mean, yeah, I, I will consent that she's she, she did her lines and she did them fine. I just, I don't like her and I, I think that it's because Allie McBeal poisoned me against her. 
as Sylvan mentioned, Helena has phenomenal pick-me energy, and I, I think Flockhart nails it. Oh yeah, no, she's, I, I thought she was delightful in this, but I also never really watched Allie McBeal, so I don't carry any biases against her and could judge her just on this performance. Which was great. She has the creepy desperation factor down pat. Yeah, that's like all of Allie McBeal. Flockhart initially considered A Midsummer Night's Dream to be too silly and frivolous for her tastes. However, once she changed her mind, filming had to be rescheduled as to not conflict with Allie McBeal, which became a big hit. I don't understand why! I mean, 90s sitcoms, a a lot of the big hits by today's standards, thankfully, are terrible, so... Yeah, Friel and West were mostly stage actors. This is one of the few film roles that either of them did. And then we have baby Christian Bale. It's so distracting. Yeah, he's like 19 in this. It's weird. It's just Christian Bale, but his head is smaller. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I I thought his performance was good. Yeah, he's, he's a good actor. He is. Yeah, Demetrius is supposed to be, like, the sullen, irritable one who is the least lovable, and yeah, he he nails that bit. (laughs) On a bike. (laughs) Stop following me. (laughs) Hong Kong. And for the other human Athenians, we have David Strathairn as Theseus, Sophie uh, Marceau as Hippolyta, Bernard Hill as Aegeus, and John Sessions as Philostate. I really liked Hippolyta. I thought she did such a good job. I know Theseus and Hippolyta don't get much to do in A Midsummer Night's Dream, but I think both of the actors did as much as they could with what they had. I mean... They were very likable. Yeah, Theseus is like, I don't think his lines are inherently funny, but the way that Straithan read them, I smiled like every third thing he said. I liked how communicative they were without having many lines with each other. Like, there was a lot of physical acting and looks and stuff. Yeah, because Hippolyta obviously sympathizes with the lovers and resents that Theseus is kind of like towing the legal line in the first few acts. And there's a bit where, like, you know, after they come upon them naked in the field, she, like, pulls him aside and they whisper with each other for a bit. And it's like, you know, all's well that ends well. Everybody's happy except the Aegeus, but fuck that guy. <laughs> Let him clang his silverware down angrily at the wedding reception. It's cool. I, I mean, I think he's the only character who isn't fucked, and that's probably part of the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly like to, like, I've never giggled at all with, like, any of that. So, like, when he's, like, come to me after, like, making the decision in the beginning of the movie, and she just immediately turns around and leaves the room, I was like, oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, there are different ways for Theseus and Hippolyta to play off each other. Um, A lot of versions of A Midsummer Night's Dream play it as an arranged marriage where they're kind of distant to each other. This one, they're kind of into each other, which I like. Yeah, they just, you know, were individuals that disagreed about certain things. Then we get to the fairies. Stanley Tucci is Puck. Yeah, I mean, he's just so likable in everything he does. I know, I'm very fond of Tucci. I recently came across this Reductress article, which was this uh, millennial girl who grew up watching Easy A, and she was into the romantic lead in Easy A, but now that she's in her 30s, she's like, I'm into the dad, who's played by Stanley Tucci. And the article plays it as a joke, but then all of these 30-something women in the comments are like, no, Stanley Tucci can get it. (laughs) (laughs) And then I looked in there, like, I shared a picture of Puck, and it was like, okay, I was kidding when I said that Stanley Tucci can get it. It, but now Stanley Tucci can get it. 
like people are like like oh this has awakened something in me thanks the thing that he does with his eyebrows is just charming i mean he can side eye he's a world-class actor i like him in just about everything he's in charles like he's the expert sad old man who delivers a rousing speech oh he is though yeah i mean like I, i swear he's the reason i like the devil wears prada I've never seen the movie. I read the book and hated the book. Whatever it was like, no, the book sucks. You should watch the movie. I also read the book and hated the book, but the movie's so... I love the movie. <laughs> you know, the last thing I saw Stanley Tucci in was his cooking show. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, he basically just goes to various Italian villages and asks people about their food traditions. It's super charming. I was waiting for you to be like, and then he just shares the meal in front of the camera, and I'm like, I'll watch it. <laughs> That sounds nice. All right, uh, then we have Rupert Everett as Oberon. Once again, it's nuts that Klein wanted to be Oberon because he gets like four lines. Here's this objectively handsome man who we're going to cover in body glitter and have him whisper, and you know what? That's fine. Maybe that's what he wanted, though. Maybe he wanted the body glitter. He's just like, I don't get any glitter at all. (laughs) (laughs) Relatively speaking, I think everyone had to, like, wash glitter off themselves for a few weeks after shooting ended, which is how it works with the Midsummer Night's Dream. And how it works with glitter. (laughs) And then Michelle Pfeiffer as Titania. This is very the... aesthetically pleasing. Uh huh. A lot of the reviews were just like Kevin Klein's very good in this, and Stanley Tucci's very good in this, and Michelle Pfeiffer's very pretty. I thought she was good, and she had to wear hair suspenders over her boobs. So like, calm down, people. <laughs> This is the first time that Pfeiffer had professionally done Shakespeare, aside from a New York stage production of Twelfth Night that she did when she was just starting out. Titania doesn't get too many great lines either, aside from when she's horny for Donkey Bottom. (laughs) (laughs) But those parts are very sweet too, especially when, you know, the bits where she's wrapped around him in the bower and all the other fairs are just like, ugh, not again. I will say, like, her performance was not as stellar as everyone else's, but props to the costume department. Like, her hair, makeup, and costuming was fabulous. That's why I was distracted by the pretty. This version of A Midsummer Night's Dream was released on May 14th in the United States, September 24th in the UK, and October 8th in Italy. The reviews were largely lukewarm. Too many bikes for them? Uh, yes, there were some complaints that the bikes were distracting, so Charles not alone there. I mean, I don't think that they were distracting bad, but they did definitely draw your attention. Yeah, I mean, I noticed them as much as I noticed the fact that, like, everybody was talking about Athens, but, like, then also in Italy, you know, like, modern, not modern day, but, like, would you say it was? Like, 19-something? Yeah, it's it's vaguely 1890s-ish. You get this part where Clarissa the flower card is just, like, running through the woods sobbing, and she's like, why did I think that I should bring a bike into the woods? This isn't working out. The decision to allow the actors to use their natural accents was contentious amongst reviewers. This is still during a period where everyone was uh, expected to use an English affect when they were doing Shakespeare, regardless of where they hailed from. See, I liked the fact that they were using their natural accents. It made the dialogue sound more natural. Yep. 
they were still using the iambic pentameter rhyme scheme. It was a more naturalistic reading of it. Uh, there's lots of parts where they're like, you know, breathing heavily after running or giving an aside or just talking more casually than you sort of expect from people who are just like chanting in a rhythmic rhyme in order to make sure that the people in the back rows were hearing it. This was definitely something that was performed for a camera and not a live audience. So I, I'm not a huge Shakespeare nerd myself, but that being said, I am friends with many huge Shakespeare nerds who have performed in many Shakespeare plays and I've gone into quite a few to support them. And I'm totally used to and accepting of people playing fast and loose with their Shakespeare interpretations and trying different things and all that. Um, Like one of my favorite productions of Hamlet that I saw had some gender flipping going on and Hamlet was a girl and it was great. So I saw one Shakespeare play. I can't remember too many details about it anymore. But one of my favorite things was they took one of the like seedy clownish characters and made him like Southie trash thick Boston accent, carrying around an iced Dunkin' Donuts coffee, (laughs) wearing, like, a Red Sox hat and a Bruins shirt, and still with the really thick Boston accent, also kept to the, you know, the Shakespearean text and had that kind of Shakespeare dialogue sound. I wish I could imitate it. It was so delightful, and it added an extra dimension to the performance, and I fucking loved it. So yeah, having people mix it up and and do the different accents, I think that's more appropriate. As for ratings of the performances, uh, Klein and Tucci got most of the praise from contemporary critics, which is to be expected. Those are the two juiciest roles, and both of their performances were pretty awesome. A Midsummer Night's Dream had a production budget of $11 million, much of it going to not only the mezzanine, but the use of CGI, particularly on the ferries, and there was like this Terminator liquid appearing uh, before Klein got his donkey ears. Oh, yeah, right. that part didn't age well. The uh, Medusa snake scene, that was the one that got me, where they were just like, no, it's movie magic. <laughs> it made $16.1 million, which made it a flop. It also got no major award nominations. So this kind of came and went. Do you know what it was up against? It wasn't up against anything because it never got nominated. No, I know, but like what came out like when it was... 1999? Uh, that's when American Beauty came out, I think. Oh, I do like that movie. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it, but that's another episode. Anyways, themes. This is a Shakespeare play. A lot of people have written a lot of things about it, so I'm just going to tackle one thing that's specific to the film and then two things that are often touched upon. The first I wrote down was sexual ambiguity. Even by Shakespeare standards, this is considered the horny one. I miss a lot of sexual innuendo, and even I noticed. (laughs) I mean, when it's every third line, you're going to notice a few of them. This one has followed the play around since it first appeared. The earliest known criticisms of A Midsummer Night's Dream chastise it for being foppish or decadent. It is not difficult to find homoeroticism and queer disruption in the play's subtext or its stated text. There's a lot you can say about young, horny, and dopey people running off into the woods where the laws of Athens and Aegeus can be ignored at least for an evening. And no matter what time period it is staged, it is rubbed up against the sexual politics of every era that has seen it to some degree. And uh, I think is a big part of why there wasn't too much performance between the 1600s and the 1800s. 
or why when that god-awful 1930s one was staged, they altered it to the point where it was almost unrecognizable. Like it, may, it made me think of watching like a TV edited version of Goodfellas. I can't even picture that. What, do you think I'm funny, monkey fellow? <laughs> Alright, the next thing I wrote down for themes was feminism and individual agency. This one comes up a lot, especially during second wave feminism. Because every female character in the story is bristling under the arbitrary dictates of male power. Things work out for all of our heroes, but only because benevolent patriarchs intervened on their behalf. The ladies are still beholden to those who hold all the land, wealth, and positions of authority, whether they are humans or fairies. Oh, except for his aunt. Oh, yeah, Lysander's aunt, who... Never shows up in the play. She's yeah. a name drop, but she, she's got stuff. Yeah, even the fairy world, although tinged with alluring unreality, is still subject to the whims of mediocre dudes with unearned confidence. Cross Oberon, and he'll make you enamored of an ass. And I, I do think that it is saying something that, kind of like Thomas More's Utopia, where the perfect imaginary society exists, but slavery is still a thing. Even in the wildest fantasies of Elizabethan England, there's still patriarchy. Well, I mean, play is written by a dude. Why would he have questioned the system? I mean, I do think there is questioning of the system within the text, although maybe not directly. There is a lot of back and forth over Shakespeare's sexual politics and how transgressive he was by the standards of his time. Some people think that he is very much so, but others are just like, uh, no, I think it's more of a straw man thing. Kind of like how the Amazons are depicted in Greek mythology. I mean, yeah, they are fierce warrior women, but every time they show up, they get their asses handed to them. I could just see where it would be, like, kind of an unconscious thing. Like, why would he think to disrupt the system that's so firmly entrenched and all that? Like, it wouldn't even occur. So thus, the fairies having the same thing going on, it would have seemed natural. Yeah, more or less. That's our default setting. It didn't even occur to him to think otherwise. Alright, and now for this film version specifically, I do think that it tries to make Bottom into a tragic figure, at least a little bit, and that is a curious decision because Bottom is depicted in the original source material and most of the other stagings as just a two-dimensional buffoon that we're supposed to point and laugh at. There's not supposed to be more to him than that. And the film tries to add dimension to him, which I think is interesting and worthy of discussion. I did feel bad for him during the wine scene. Yeah, there is a lot of, like, very pointed close-up of Klein's facial acting as he is just, like, hamming it up and having fun, and then these two kids just dump wine on his white suit that he's never going to be able to get clean again, and uh, while everyone's laughing, he's just sitting down there and wiping his face, and he's get got brought down to earth again. Because, like, the whole crowd was with him up until that point, and then all of a sudden they, like, turned against him. Nobody was like, fuck you, kids. They're like, this is all so good. That part did take me out a little bit because, you know, they were still working within the Shakespearean dialogue, so they had this very notable action that he was emoting from, but then they carried on with the dialogue of the play where that never happens. Yeah, I mean, my read on that scene is that the rest of the mechanicals are just like, I don't know what to say to this situation, but maybe we'll help him keep a bit of his dignity if we just carry on. Oh, I can tell that's what they were going for. I just don't know how effective it was. 
For me, anyway. There are multiple scenes where Bottom is made out to be a pathetic figure, and one that is aware that he is a pathetic figure, which is the distinction here. It did resonate with me because I have innate sympathy for untalented hack artists who defiantly ply their trade to an indifferent world. As a creative type myself, I've often looked in the mirror and openly wondered if I'm kidding myself and if I'm wasting my damn life. I look at Bottom's inept retelling of Ovid, and I am filled with sympathy at that. And I've looked at that at other uh, hack artists, uh, particularly this came up on our uh, episode about Ed Wood. So yeah, the Bard almost certainly meant Bottom uh, and the Rude Mechanicals to be simple buffoons who get some cheap laughs from the peanut gallery in Act 5, but I feel their pain nonetheless. And yeah, getting back to the bit where Thisbe breaks and dies with the actor's normal voice, that was also an interesting decision that made the mechanicals more faceted than they typically are and I do think that that's a big part why that play within a play scene worked and often rarely does in other film versions at least by my reading yeah absolutely I, I really liked that choice also getting people to go like huh one of them's actually potentially talented and being wasted <laughs> <laughs> like seeing the actors responding to him was fun yeah, I think that's also why I never got into singing competitions, even when American Idol was at the height of its popularity. Just because, just like watching someone just pour everything that they have into their heart song, and they're just to get dunked on by the judges and also millions of Americans, and it was like, aww. At the same time, I do enjoy Mystery Science Theater 3000, which is essentially the same thing. I would assume that because they usually pick work that's so old. I'm like, I can't imagine those people are watching that show. I have encountered instances where when they made fun of a more contemporary film, they had, like, people who were involved in that film get in touch with them and act like that they were cool with it, but that they were also kind of sad at the same time. And they're just like, oh, we're being mean. Oh, I didn't know that. Though I stand by their interpretation of the Saw movie, I didn't like it. <laughs> All right, well, that's everything in my notes. Is there um, anything about A Midsummer Night's Dream that we haven't covered, at least for this film version, that you would like to mention before we close out? Yes, I really like Huck's fur pants. I've seen so many people put them in, like, weird little, like, goat hooves, and then the actors have, like, this hard time moving around. They were so good in this movie. Well, he needed to ride a bike. Fair, but I think <laughs> it was the right choice. See, the bikes helped. <laughs> I didn't like his weird little man bun in the back, though. I found it very confusing, because it's like, he's got another horn! Wait, it's made out of hair. Wait, it's just his hair. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> I thought it looked fun with his ears. I did like his ears. Sylvan, anything you want to mention about this version of the movie? This was my first time encountering uh, A Midsummer Night's Dream since college, so I was a little, like, fuzzy on the plot, but it all came back, obviously. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. I wish I had done some reading up before we watched it, though, because I wanted to know more details about makeup and costuming. I thought that was a, a bang-up job that they did. Yeah, it was nice. Better than Mickey Rooney, anyways. Low bar. Alright, thanks for listening to this, everybody. And uh, thank you for not subjecting us to the Mickey Rooney version. I'm not going to watch that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hate that one. Alright, uh, listen to us next time.